Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. With us to discuss our weekly roundup of the news, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call, the inevitable John Bennett. And they're with us this week to talk about a wide variety of things, including uh, the uh, Dominion settlement, a breach of information that Trump had wanted to use during the election. Um, Elon Musk yanks the blue check mark. Is Dr. Ronnie Jackson a bully? We'll settle that question once and for all. Uh, Jim Jordan and Alvin Bragg battle it out in court in New York and the outcome of that. And of course, <laughs> President Biden has the fewest press conferences since Ronald Reagan. And to tell you how old I was, I was there during the Reagan administration. So we're going to discuss that and much more. And uh, if Michael has his way, we're going to be talking about uh, Paul McCartney's favorite Beatles song. So stick around and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us again is Michael Zeldin and John Bennett. And we're going to start out this week, guys, talking about, uh, I actually want to start out with, um, not Biden, but um, Alvin Bragg and Jim Jordan uh, this week battled it out in court in New York City about the uh, fight over a Trump inquiry and whether or not former prosecutor could be interviewed. And uh, Michael, I'm going to... Uh, to, you know, I'll, I'll go over it real quick and then want you to jump in. It was uh, Bragg agreed Friday to let uh, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee question an ex-prosecutor about the criminal case against former President Donald Trump. You're shaking your head. That's the AP Wire lead, and I'll let you jump in right now with that. Bragg resisted the subpoena. Yes, he I did. Unless, I thought you said, did you just say, maybe we should start all over. Did you just say? Well, the AP wire says Friday they agreed to a settlement that allows him to talk to him. But that's where I want to bring you in with that. Because, okay. um, and that's, I'm sorry. Maybe we should start this over, Brian. I'm, I screwed no, up. No, I, go ahead. I didn't see. Why don't we start it again? Because I didn't see that they settled. I saw that the state, the, the Second Circuit stayed the order on the second well under the agreement committee members will be able to question mark pomerantz under oath next month in dc the deal resolves a lawsuit in which uh oh, so can uh, we start this off the block prompt pomerantz from test but there is there is something you you bring up an interesting uh, wait point. can we can we start this all over brian no <laughs> no let's go ahead uh, that's oh, no. 
because you're you're you have an excellent point. I spoke with the um, the lawyer, and I I happen to know uh, Bragg's lawyer pretty well. His name is Ted Boutros. He was mine, and uh, when I fought the Trump administration, but the agreement is actually um, while they're painting it as a win for Jordan, it actually appears to be more of a win for for uh, Bragg. So it, with that said, if you want to jump in or, or John, you can jump in first if you want. Go ahead, John. Yeah, this I mean, it's a settlement. So you would think everybody's going to win a little bit and everybody's going to lose a little bit. Um, and that appears to be where we are. Nobody got everything uh, that they wanted, which is um, which is kind of what a settlement is or, or a compromise. So, um, you know. The Judiciary Committee uh, does have, I think, some argument here that they do have a right to investigate some of this, but uh, I don't believe the House or Senate, for that matter, which is run by a Democrat, Dick Durbin, Judiciary Committees um, have a right to interfere in an ongoing uh, criminal case. And that's what the courts, the other courts are going to have to sort out is where does Jordan, as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, perhaps Jim Comer, um, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, where where does that stop? Where where does Congress is because these are investigative committees with subpoena power, uh, stabs of lawyers, stabs of investigators. This is what they do, um, and 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 they have the legal right to do that. Uh, but so where does that stop? Because these are ongoing criminal proceedings. That's what the court uh, is trying to help you know, everyone involved try to sort out. Now, um, we can have a separate debate on whether we think Jim Jordan is really here to do a serious congressional investigation and to, yeah, do, I don't think he is, to but... do oversight. And I'm using quote fingers. Uh, people can't see that. But is, is he doing oversight with a capital O or is he doing quote fingers oversight? And right. I think all evidence so far that Mr. Jordan is here to defend Donald Trump uh, and a short list of other folks. So he's doing quote fingers oversight. Um, I'm not sure how the court is going to factor that in. They may have to at some point. Uh, but as far as right now, he's going to get to talk to some of the folks that he wants to. Well, and I think you got to take a look. And and um, but, uh, Michael, the part where uh, Bragg's office, the appeals court had been scheduled to hear oral arguments in the dispute on Tuesday. Bragg's office said the agreement delaying Pomerantz's testimony until May 12th preserves the district attorney's privileges and interests in the ongoing Trump prosecution. And he says, quote, our successful stay on this subpoena. So he he believes they were successful in their stay on this subpoena, blocked the immediate deposition and afforded us the time necessary to coordinate with the House Judiciary Committee on an agreement that protects the district attorney's privileges and interests. So he feels like they weren't bullied into making him testify now and that they can uh, agree and arrange a testimony that's beneficial at the same time, allowing him to continue his investigation. That's right. And I just uh, now got caught up. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> welcome to the, welcome to the game. <laughs> well, yeah, to the listening audience. Face is loaded and you're up. <laughs> right, right, right. So yes, it seems like what you guys both said is a correct summary of, of the case. Now, it was always a close call whether or not there was a colorable basis for Jordan to exercise his oversight 
um, authority. Remember, the authority of Congress to investigate these things is in pursuance of possible legislation. Mm -hmm. So if you remember in the case of Trump's tax returns, the argument opposing the tax returns was this is just a political effort to embarrass the president. The committee said, no, no, no. We're looking at whether or not we're going to pass legislation that requires presidential candidates to uh, release their taxes and other tax-related things. And no, these things will never see the light of day. And ultimately, they won. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been legislation. And the tax returns were released. So there's a bipartisan effort to use the quote-unquote legislative oversight subpoena process for political aim. And that's what Jordan was doing here. But if you look at the Trump tax returns as a possible precedent, then Jordan is colorably within his authority. There was some federal money spent on the Bragg um, investigation. There is the possibility that Bragg will use federal criminal law, federal election commission requirements for filing of um, disclosures um, as the basis for making a felony. So you're using a state prosecution and a federal crime. And so theoretically, Congress can look into the propriety of that. So I think that Jordan had a colorable argument. I think you're absolutely right. This is all about politics, very similar to the Trump tax returns. Um, and now that they got a negotiated settlement, um, each side will win a little and, and lose a little. Congress's prerogatives to issue subpoenas uh, will uh, stand, and uh, Bragg's authority to resist interference in an ongoing criminal prosecution will also stand. So it's a win-win, lose-lose. Um, in the end, it's not going to matter, because in the end, Pomerantz, was a DA in that office who quit because he thought that Bragg wasn't being aggressive enough. Uh -huh. And so why you would want a witness who's going to testify, I left that office because Donald Trump committed so many more crimes than that office was prepared to prosecute. I felt in good conscience I had to leave. How is that a helpful witness if you're trying to um, shill for Donald Trump? But, you know, what do I know? Um, and um, Jim Jordan is, you know, a way better lawyer. <laughs> well, I'm, there's this part here. And I want to go over that, that the win, win, lose, lose part, because um, Ted Boutros, his, the attorney for Bragg, who has been an, a guest on this show as well, uh, argued that, uh, said that he sees it, it you know, however we paint it, it's a win. It's a definite win for Alvin Bragg. He said that seeking Pomerantz's testimony was part of a, quote, Transparency campaign to intimidate and attack Bragg, and that Congress was, quote, invading a state, quote, uh, end quote, to investigate a local prosecutor when it had no authority to do so. And he said that uh, Jordan, to uh, parrot what both of you said, he said that uh, Jordan's interest in Bragg amounted to Congress, quote, jumping in and haranguing the DA while the prosecution is ongoing. And he said at the end of the day, he said this is a win for the prosecution because they're going to have their it'll have to be agreed upon questioning. It'll have to be in an open court um, and that <clears throat> it'll be in a reasonable agreed upon time frame, and that they have no problems answering those questions in the manner that, and never did 
but said that the way it was conducted, what what uh, and, and that it sets a precedent. So whatever else Congress wants to do against Bragg, we'll have to go through this this eye hole, this you know needle hole uh, to go forward. So he sees it as a total victory for for Bragg. Now, obviously, Ted is is uh, Bragg's attorney and he's and I'm going to say he's a damn good one. He kept I, I was able to sue successfully Donald Trump three times because of Ted. So I'm very happy for for him or if we sued him and defend one three times and defended in court. But is there any way to look at it other than the fact that it's a victory for Bragg? Yes. Remember, if Jordan is here to score political points, to get on Fox News and Newsmax and to be seen by Donald Trump as defending Donald Trump, then he can do that with partial victories like this and, and still get his sound bites and his clips and things that Trump's company could put on Truth Social and Trump himself can re, re I hate to say retruth, but repost. Um, that If that's what Jordan's after, then that's a much lower bar. He can, right. still, he can achieve that without having, you know, 90% legal victories. Well, but is it a, a legal victory for him, Michael? I don't think I'm sorry. I don't think it matters. That's my point. Uh, yeah, I, guess, I, get I don't it. think that's yeah. what he's here for. Yeah, right. it's 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 a it's a political victory to the extent that John um, laid it out. But it also, in in a sense, is a is a small uh, legal victory in that the Congress is still going to subpoena a state prosecutor in the midst of an ongoing criminal investigation, and the state prosecutor acquiesced to to that um uh mm. the subpoena mm -hmm. is withdrawn i guess or 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 stayed in, in in some way and now this is an agreed upon um conversation so maybe it's you know such that the authority of the congress to subpoena a state prosecutor isn't uh, fully established um but rather in the aftermath of a subpoena to a state prosecutor the state prosecutor agreed to provide some level of testimony. So I guess that's affirming of Congress's authority to subpoena in 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 some some way. Do you think it sets precedence for further incursions into state politics or state um, judiciary uh, matters from the federal government? Well, one can only hope that um, Jim Jordan is one of a kind, and that. The, oh, he's definitely one of a kind. Uh, <laughs> that, that prosecutors, that Congress will exercise greater judgment than to interfere in a political, um, in a political way in a ongoing criminal investigation. But I, I have no assurance on either side of the aisle that that lesson will be learned if there's, to John's point, a political um, benefit uh, to them. I think political benefit trumps constitutional um, prerogatives uh, mm. country as a whole not not to use that word indiscriminately but it did trump it well just <laughs> just just one more thing about sure. congress's um i guess authorities and role jim comer chairman of the oversight committee has said he wants to write legislation on on like ethical standards and what family members of a president can and can't do uh, in investment wise business wise um, now, whether we believe Mr. Comer, I'll leave that up to the listeners. I haven't heard anything like that from Jordan. So that's that's a difference, at least in what the, those two chairmen are saying. But again, um, you know, we haven't seen draft legislative text from Comer or anything like that yet. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you, you, Comer's from Kentucky, and his mind will change when Mitch tells him what to do. Aha. Uh-huh. That's, I mean, without a doubt, Mitch McConnell runs that state run and unfortunately has a very large hand <clears throat> in how uh, business is conducted in the Senate and, con- and uh, the House. But um, switching to that, if we can, uh, let's talk a little bit about the test text messages that reveal Donald Trump uh, operatives considered using breached voting data to decertify Georgia's Senate runoff in 2021. Uh, Michael, what would be the problem with using breached data? Well, the word breached is a good hint. (laughs) (laughs) You can't, you know, it's sort of like, so if I break into your house, Brian, and steal your credit card, what's the problem of my spending with your credit card? Well, oh, if my wife's been in it, you got bigger problems than that, but go ahead. Well, I'll leave that between you two. The the uh, reality is that the reporting from CNN is that the Trump, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and other um, elected officials in Georgia acquired impermissibly voting data from a, a rural county 70-ish miles uh, outside of Atlanta. And the plan was originally to use that data somehow to show that there was fraud in the data. And if they could prove fraud in the data there, then they can say, well, now we should look at other counties. And it was part of this cascading effort to undo the presidential election results in Georgia. The new reporting says, in addition to that, they were considering using that uh, stolen data to try to do the same thing in the Georgia Senate runoff elections. So what you have here is a scheme apparently um, discussed in an Oval Office meeting at which the president was present um, to use essentially stolen property, the data, to try to change the outcome of both the presidential and the Georgia Senate runoff elections. And that's serious stuff. That's that's pretty criminal um, uh, in terms of the acquisition, in terms of the improper use, in terms of the conspiratorial agreement to do all of those things. And if the reporting is correct, that the president agreed to, to that, it's harder for him to say in good faith he believed that he won the election and therefore he was just, quote unquote, making a phone call to Rathensburger to have him have a second look at it. This is, you know, if it's receiving stolen property and you know it's uh, acquired in violation of Georgia uh, voting uh, uh, regulations, then it's pretty hard to say that the further use of that is acceptable in any way and understandably usable in any way, uh, even mistakenly. So I think it's a it's a serious- It's an incomplete picture too. It's not just that it was breached and stolen data. It's it's an incomplete look at what was going on in the vote. So it's it's like if you come to my house and steal the credit card and, and believe from stealing the credit card, you know everything about me, you're completely wrong. Well, and the thing that makes, makes this worse, of course, is that the same thing was going on in Michigan and in Arizona. And this wasn't a burglary in the sense that people broke into the uh, voting thing late at night and 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 stole it. 
they had insiders who were cooperating with them. They had voting officials who were giving right. them access to the data. We've seen the video of them walking in and being given the, the, the data to download onto their computers and, and leave with. And so if you're a prosecutor, you're going to be looking at not only just, if you will, the burglars, but the, the people who ins, were inside that opened the door to let you in the house. So there's a broad conspiracy of possibilities here. Yeah, that's according to uh, Fannie Willis. The um, um, this it's part of a, and she's the uh, Fulton County District Attorney. It's part of a a um, a wide range criminal investigation, and she says she's weighing potential racketeering uh, charges against multiple defendants, and is actively deciding who to bring charges against, and has subpoenaed a number of individuals involved in the Coffee County breach. And I love this, including the men who tried to uh, carry it out. And in addition, has subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell as part of her probe. Uh, John, is there political hay for Trump to make out of this? You pointed out at the last one. Is he going to come out and say it's just a just another case of the deep state going after him? Or has he got any uh, room wiggle room there? <laughs> yes. And yes. yes. Yeah, uh, he will. And yes, uh, three yeses there. He will make political hay out of it. He will find some wiggle room and uh the third yes was still yes um, yeah and and yeah and the deep state he'll say this yeah. is just you know the the radical liberal deep state oh we could write that and, tweet in about 30 yeah. seconds that's, that's easy yeah we could do that uh we could do that in less than 30 seconds um okay so he's he's going to argue this is the deep state he's going to say this is just they're coming after me and he's going to this will allow him to continue um this notion that um, he, as he tells his followers at rallies and on Truth Social that they're not really coming after me. They're somehow coming after Republican voters. And he just happens to be their voice, their champion. And he's just in the way. So they have to take him down. So somehow they can take down some guy in some small town in Alabama, which um, I don't know. I, I tried to connect these dots once and I didn't really get there. So Trump will try, but this reminds me of something. I was listening to a podcast of Nicole Wallace's uh, MSNBC show from, I believe, Friday this morning. And a lawyer representing uh, the, the former Maria Bartiromo uh, producer who's suing Fox, saying that um, her testimony in some of these depositions and, and whatnot uh, was coerced. She was told what to say. She was told to lie. He, this, this, this really it really crystallized listening to, to you and Michael talk. Um, he, he said um, for, for Fox and the Fox lawyers and Trump and, and Trump's inner circle, he mentioned Giuliani. He mentioned Powell that the, the truth just doesn't matter to them. And the facts just don't matter to them. And so, you know, this breach data, Brian, you said it's an incomplete picture. It, it, it does. It's not, you know, it's not right. the full, it's not as Dave Chappelle once said, it's not the whole shebang bang. So, but they don't care about that. Nice call out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't care about that. They just care that this little, this little square of what tells the whole picture in Georgia supports their narrative. And, you know, the, he also brought in Giuliani uh, telling uh, Mr. Uh, Bowers, the former speaker of the Arizona house, a Republican, a conservative Republican, um, that, well, we have a lot of theories, but we don't have the facts yet, Rusty. So they never have the facts. They still don't have the facts. 
And again, it, it, this is their MO. Just take this little sliver of data from Georgia and say the whole thing was rigged. And well, that's what they do with Tucker Carlson and the, right. the doctor uh, video. That's what they do with everything. Right. And it, only- it, it's never held up when put under serious scrutiny or even, you know, not even medium salsa. You put this thing up against mild salsa and it falls apart. So, <laughs> And that happens time and time again. They never had the evidence. They never will because it's just not out there. Michael, the one I want, thing I wanted to ask you is it's noted in this article that uh, special counsel Jack Smith uh, appears to be examining the broader efforts to breach data uh, in Georgia. Is this a potential federal charge as well? Or are we looking at the possibility of additional, you know, well, we haven't seen any federal charges yet, but is, are, are we looking at additional investigation into federal charges because of this? This was a presidential election. So the federal prosecutors have an interest in the integrity of the presidential election. And so the fact that it was a, a theft of data out of uh, a county in Georgia, I don't think would interfere with Smith inquiring of this. And if he felt that there's a broad federal conspiracy to defraud the United States, to interfere with the orderly transfer of power, one of his overt acts in such a conspiracy would be that, and then they went to Georgia and they stole this data and they embarked on a multi-state scheme, Michigan, Arizona, thinking about Pennsylvania as well, I believe, um, to try to overturn the outcome of of an election. And that's a conspiracy. Those Those are overt acts in a broad federal conspiracy to defraud the United States. So sure, he gives him, you know, it wouldn't, he wouldn't charge the crime of, of the theft necessarily, but the way a conspiracy indictment reads is two or more people engaged in, uh, entered into an agreement. So the first thing is they entered into an agreement and then with that agreement, they took steps in furtherance of the agreement. So the three of us agree we're going to rob a bank. So that's our agreement. Bennett goes out and gets the getaway car. Haram gets the 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 masks and I get the the bag to put the cash in. All of those are over. Can I be the wheel man? I love to drive. No, Bennett's got <laughs> Bennett's got the car. Um, <laughs> I grew up watching NASCAR. I'm a natural. Exactly. <laughs> He's from the South, you know, North Carolina. That's, you know, anyway, hazard, all that stuff. Exactly. So back to uh, the uh, explanation, we've agreed to rob the bank. We've taken at least one overt step um, in furtherance of that. Here I outlined three overt steps, the, the bag, the car, the masks. And then we either rob the bank or attempt to rob the bank or don't even rob the bank because we decide uh, that it's too dangerous, but we've already conspired and taken steps, so we have an attempt. All of that stuff is how you lay this out. So in when to answer your question, Brian, if Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Trump, the election officials, all of them agreed, we're going to acquire this data and then try to use it in a way to overturn the outcome of the election, that acquisition of the data is this overt act in furtherance of this agreement to interfere with the election. And so that's how the federal prosecutors could use this stuff. That's why they would investigate it 
in Georgia, it in Michigan, it in Arizona, and all the other steps that are connected to that, like the fake electors, like the call to Rathenberger, all of those things become additional overt acts and furtherance of this broad-based conspiracy to defraud. That's I, I will be interested to see if and when federal charges are filed, how this plays into that going forward. That, that'll be very interesting to look at. Look, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we have a lot more to talk about, including Biden's fewest press conferences ever, Dr. Ronnie Jackson and his bullying techniques. And of course, uh, you know, we, we've got to talk about Paul McCartney just to make Michael happy. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question, and I have cleaned up a massive water spill in my office. Uh, this is Brian Karam. I am your host. With me again is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large CQ Roll Call John Bennett. We're talking about, well, let's unpack a little bit the Dominion lawsuit settlement that occurred uh, this week. I wrote about it in Salon, and one of the things I said is that uh, there are a lot of people that are upset that, um, that Dominion settled with Fox because they wanted to see Fox's dirty laundry aired all over uh, national news. And uh, even though they settled for 787, well, that's a lot of money, million dollars. It's the largest uh, uh, defamation suit, libel suit ever settled in the United States against a media company. It has, um, it is unprecedented, but it does uh, keep a lot of stuff under wraps. You won't see the testimony from Rupert Murdoch or Hannity or or in, from anybody else on the witness stand, including, you know, our favorite Tucker Carlson, not going to see that. What you did see was a settlement. It was a capitalistic move by a capitalistic company in a, in a uh, world that's dominated by capitalism. But unpacking it a little bit more, Michael, give it a whirl and tell me where you think that leads us. Well, it's a very interesting situation. There is an article in the New York Times, an op-ed in the New York Times that is definitely worth reading, which is by the CEO of Dominion. And he said, I understand everyone being disappointed that Tucker Carlson and uh, the likes were not put on the witness stand and um, made to answer questions. But he says a couple of things. One is we asked them in depositions, all of the questions that we would have asked them in trial and all of those depositions have been made available. So what they would have said on the stand, they've already said in the depositions in large measure. He said, second, what we were looking for uh, besides a financial settlement was accountability. And we believe that this judgment against Fox holds them accountable. Yes, they didn't issue a full-throated apology, but we believe that they never were going to do that. Even if we 
require them to say something more than they said, which was we acknowledge that the judge said that we lied, that it was never going to be sincere, and they were never going to air it on their network. And we we couldn't make them air that on the network. So we got the testimony. It We got the accountability. We were never going to get a sincere a sincere sincere apology and so it was a win for democracy and of course a win for dominion and by the way stand by because we've got suit against newsbacks we've got a suit against giuliani we've got a suit against sydney powell we're we, you know you ain't seen nothing yet and i suppose that's a fair way of looking at it. the only thing i would have liked for them to do would be to have required as part of the settlement if it was achievable Fox airing the settlement and talking about it in an honest way on their news shows. I watch in particular Sean Hannity's show, The Night of the Settlement, to see what, if anything, he'd say about it. And he said nothing. That was not even given 30 seconds of airtime in a, oh, by the way, there was a settlement. I didn't expect it, but no, I understand that. But that's where I remain somewhat disappointed in the outcome. I think that I think they could have achieved it because I think Fox wanted to settle more than Dominion. I think Fox didn't want the 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 show of their talent coming in and out of the courthouse. The depositions, while we may have the same content, we don't have the same sort of media spectacle that people driving into the tent and 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 the like. Um, so I would have liked to have seen a little bit more in the accountability side of the agreement through an apology or at least the airing of the settlement, bringing on, being required to bring on a, a guest to have a honest discussion about what the outcome is. But people will say that's not what civil, that's not what civil litigation is about. Civil litigation is about making people financially whole for their loss. And this made Dominion financially whole 10 times over. Remember the owners of Dominion, the um, venture capital people that own it, their their majority stake cost them $36 million. Their net profits were projected to be $90 million in 2022. And so they have made in 2023, $700 million less whatever the lawyers take and whatever expenses they have. And let's say it's in, let's say it's half. They still have 300 million-ish dollars over what was projected to be $90 million. And they have an obligation to their uh, company to, to make that settlement on those financial terms because there was nothing that was guaranteed in this case. Uh, you know, defamation and proving uh, gross negligence or willful malice is actual malice is, is is hard. But I wanted to say one thing, and then I'll let John talk. The one thing I wanted to say is, and I um, mentioned this on air uh, not too long ago, which is the one overarching good thing of this was that this case is not going to the Supreme Court to give them a chance to look at the New York Times versus Sullivan decision, that decision which protects journalists um, more than any other against frivolous 
lawsuits like you have in England because of the standard of actual malice or gross recklessness before you can be held accountable in a defamation case. There are two justices on the Supreme Court who would like to revisit New York Times and the protections that it uh, affords. When you say revisit, you mean change. Uh, water down, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so keeping New York Times versus Sullivan out of the hands of this Supreme Court, uh, you know, that settlement and all the apologies and all that I want, I'll take just the settlement and no apologies to keep um, New York Times versus Sullivan from being uh, reviewed by this Supreme Court and possibly watered down. John? Yeah, this is far from over. Uh, the the uh, Dominion CEO also said he was worried about some of his employees uh, who were going to have to testify publicly. Um, we know that that Trump world is not, um, we see with Alvin Bragg, he's had some suspicious envelopes and death threats. So Trump world is not afraid of, of throwing those around. Brian, you know uh, better yes. than me about that. So uh, that's another reason I think he went ahead and, and accepted this number. There was reporting um, that over last weekend, the Murdoch family okayed the the Fox lawyers to um, to to offer a higher payout, and that's how they eventually got uh, to the settlement. Um, and then there, like he said, there are other suits, including Smartmatic, uh, a very similar suit to the Dominion suit against Fox, except uh, Dominion was initially seeking one point six billion. Smartmatic is seeking two point seven billion. And the Dominion CEO in the, in the same op-ed uh, that, that Michael referenced says, um, we're here for accountability. And at least to start, this has, this is my phrase, not his, kind of the most American form of accountability for a giant corporation. And that's to hit them in their bank account. Yeah, That's where they feel it. And there's a really good New York Times analysis, uh, I believe it was published. Um, I'm not sure when it was published. It's, it's on, it's at least on their mobile app this morning. Breaking down, I'm sorry, it's Washington Post, my fault, Washington Post. Um, breaking down how these suits could eventually hurt Fox uh, business-wise. Their, their, their share value was already down something like 16% since Dominion filed its lawsuit. Now, the rest of the market value, of course, since we're we're kind of in a, we're, we're, we're in a not recession, uh, right. but there's still recession fear. So the total market value is down 6%. And again, Fox's stock down 16%. So they felt something, and now they have to stroke this check. Now, this Washington Post analysis breaks down how their insurance policies may pay at least half of the 760-something million. Uh, but here comes Smartmatic. Here comes the other Dominion cases. Here come uh, the cases from, from the, the producer, former producer that I mentioned and other uh, former Fox employees. So this is far from over. And if you chip, chip, chip away at their profits, and then if 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 the stock price, you know, substantially drops, then they could have some hard decisions to make. They have, you know, you if you look at, at Fox News, like uh, a sports franchise, they have these huge contracts. Like you would, you know, you try to put together a super team with two and a half or three superstars, um, and you're also paying a coach $8 million a year. Uh, well, you don't have much left over for the supporting pieces. So as, as this plays out over the next year, two years, three years, does Fox start dumping some of its high-priced talent? Um, 
to make the books look better. So this could affect how Fox looks and sounds, especially in primetime. But I suspect the primetime folks would survive and some of the more serious folks during the daytime would be the ones um, who were let go first because that primetime is really what drives those big ad dollars and and drives those ratings at night. And of course, primetime ads cost more than ones at 2.30 in the afternoon. So this could affect Fox's coverage down the road unless, unless, and I, I put myself in this camp. Unless. You might let go of a big primetime name, but there's another one out there um, a well, starring waiting Don Bongino or whatever. Yeah, someone like that. Don, you bring, Wango yeah. or yeah, or Mark Levin. You look at their look at their weekend primetime uh, host. You could essentially just go to the minor league system and promote one of those people into the eight o'clock block or the nine o'clock block during the week, and you would save millions. So we could see Fox change, but how much? Well, I, yeah. I I don't think you've seen any I, uh, in the short term. There is no change at Fox in the short term. In the long term, it's wait it wait. We'll have to wait and determine that. But in in an excellent editorial, not in the New York Times, but in Salon, written by yours truly, um, I, <laughs> I I think the thing that what we were waiting for and what people were upset about and what the Dominion CEO was addressing in, in his New York Times editorial piece was the fact that um, there are many people, for many people in this country, all the distraction and disinformation spewed onto the desiccated landscape of journalism has been given to us by Fox, which has helped lead us into this current dystopia. There really is no other way to look at it. And the idea that they can get away with this by just paying money and then coming out that same night, Michael, as you pointed out, and there's no reference to it. There was that... There was a little reference to it in the news itself when it said, you know, they admitted some. I, I, it was a very tepid uh, a bit of a announcing that they had, you know, done something wrong. But look, this has been ongoing since, you know, Rupert Murdoch opened Fox News. It's this drive down a particular quarter for a revenue stream. And, it, and what did come out and what is obvious from what we've seen is that Fox News drives its news coverage to uh, to the beliefs of the people that watch it and not to uh, vetted facts. And if you don't change that, what are the what are the ramifications for the world at large? And we've seen what those ramifications are. They've led us, they've made available and made possible people like Donald Trump um, and and the Boberts, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Louis Gohmerts, the Comers, all of those people who, as you said earlier, John, this is all part and parcel of that being able to take a little sliver of reality and in order to craft your narrative and allowing your narrative to hang tenuously to reality based on incomplete facts or uh, ginned up facts. And there's just no way around it that Fox yeah. News has helped precipitate it has helped to propagate it and is helping to lead us to the dystopia that we're in today and sorry for that rant but go ahead michael you had something to say no, i was going to say is that fox is very deep pocketed and john's yeah, it doesn't affect them and it, it could it could it could affect share price and stuff like that the interesting thing will be to see what the impact a verdict like this 
against Newsmax, a less well-heeled mm -hmm. organization. I don't know if there's anything against One America Network, but- Yes, there is. <clears throat> those companies could be bankrupted. Yeah. Uh, with a set with a settlement in the amount that that is being sued for, the the scary thing is that you have to remember that one of the reasons that Fox was being Fox in relationship to the Dominion story was they were afraid of losing viewers to the more radical One America Network and Newsmax. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you know, in some sense, you think be careful what you wish for. If you you know if if Fox vanishes and all we got left is OAN and and Newsmax, you know, perish the thought about what you know to your rant, uh, Brian, which was actually a very uh, important um, observation about the dystopia in which we find ourselves. If if we're left with a less curated Fox uh, in OAN and, and Newsmax, um, hello New Zealand, you know, it's like be careful. <laughs> Good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> and right, and and that that ex I won't call it an exodus, but um, that I think temporary move to Newsmax and uh, One America and and others, what really was rooted in Trump's anger at Fox for calling Arizona on election night or the next night, whenever that was. Fox was one of the first to call Arizona for Joe Biden, and that really defrosted Donald Trump. And then he, well, he went out and blasted it out and folks started watching other things. I, I think that's I think Fox ratings shows that uh, they drifted back to the mothership. Well, and, and I think you got a, a, one of the things that was also in this one of the things that came out in this Dominion suit, not only that, John, but the fact that you had a reporter from Fox who did her job, Jackie Henrik, who's who fact checked Donald Trump and you have. Tucker Carlson and Hannity and them getting yeah. upset with her and wanting her fired because she did her job and they did not do theirs. So in essence, you're showing that there is a chance if, if, if Fox gets a chance, they could, they do have the people on staff and I'll defend most of the reporters, even Peter Ducey, who, who, you know, people love to rant and rave against him and he, his, he's got a foil role that he's playing. He's asking questions that are often sourced within the newsroom outside of himself and he's playing the anti-Biden uh, foil in this current, you know, it's an act. I get it. Uh, and I like Peter. But the bottom line is, is there are people there who would be able to write the ship, I think, if Fox makes changes. And Jackie's one of them. Very good, solid reporter. And so it it, it bothers me that, would, you know, uh, as we spoke in the break about um, the politics of redemption and not only and Michael, you know, your friend who's going to divinity school, a little empathy would go a long way. I would like to see Fox change, not have them uh, destroyed. You know, the, the, the thing to that exact point, as, as you know, I've said before in the beginnings of Fox, which was really founded in the aftermath of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. Lead, you know, bleeding into the impeachment. That's when they really sort of took off. I was a regular on Fox throughout that entire multi-year period, and I worked at Fox during that multi-year period. I was a, I was a for America's Most Wanted. I was one of their, uh, 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 I was the investigative reporter on air. Right. So, yeah, and I know I was, it well. And I was a legal analyst, uh, political analyst even, um, and I would appear 
weekly, nightly on um, Hannity and Combs's show. Sean Hannity and Alan Combs had a Crossfire-like show. I'd appear with Britt Hume and Bill O'Reilly to a, to a lesser extent. Tucker and I would appear all the time as, as guests talking with one another. And at that point, Fox, though decidedly conservative in its uh, political outlook, had an ongoing conversation between two people with competing ideas. When that show, Hannity and Combs, for example, switched to being just Hannity, it lost all of the uh, conversation that allows people to see that there are two sides to an issue. Uh, and that, I think, is what would be helpful for Fox is if they can keep their conservative politics, which is fine with me, um, as long as they're having a conversation um, between two competing points of view. And I think that would do them well, it would do America well, and it would be good if MSNBC followed suit and had the same um, marketplace of ideas presentation of news. Uh, and if they did, maybe all of these networks wouldn't be bleeding um, viewers. Yeah, which they all are doing. John, I'll give you a last word on this before we uh, switch topics. And you you got it, brother. What do you think? I don't I don't see the business incentive for uh, for Fox to change. That's why I think they would just they would they would go to cheaper uh, alternatives for the primetime lineup. Um, you know, Jackie and John Roberts before her at the White House, he was a very serious journalist. Uh, Bill Hemmer. Uh, even, you know, Dana Perino is is conservative, but she takes her job seriously during the day. She's on during the day. So they have folks there um, who are serious minded people, but, you know, they're drowned out by that primetime lineup spewing just lies, falsehoods and That's and true. phony narratives. Yeah. Phony yeah. narratives. So, um, again, the, the business model over there uh, doesn't really open the company up or the network up to change very much. And I just, I don't see uh, why it would. Um, and we're about to go into a presidential election and presidential elections for Fox usually mean a lot of this, a lot of dinero. So they're not business-wise set up. No money. They're not oh. set up. They're not set up to change. And, you know, they like money. Hey, I like money too. So, um, and and that's usually the answer to all of our questions. You can you can trace it back to money, and so that's why I don't think they'll change very much. The voices could change. You know, if if eventually a head needs to roll, uh, they have several in the primetime block and several in the executive suite the, that could go. Um, but overall, they're about to print money in a presidential election. There you go. Uh, before we go to the break, this is going to be a short segment, short, short question and answer. I, I assume. Uh, <laughs> Have you met us this this week on 420? No doubt, and happy 420 to everybody that celebrates it. On 420, Elon Musk removed the blue check marks, the status of 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 many to and changed to a purchase as you will blue check mark system allowing anybody to be anybody that they want. There's no vetting, just a phone number and uh, you pay eight bucks a month. And there was a lot of screaming about it on, on the internet. 
I, I in fact think that it's a it's a bad idea. But at the end of the day, does anybody really give a shit outside of, of <laughs> Twitterdom? Does anybody care? That's John. I'm, that's a that's a very good question. Full disclosure, uh, I lost my blue check mark this week, but I noticed Brian J. Karam still Did. has his blue check mark. Yeah. Is Elon picking up your tab? <laughs> no, I bought my blue check mark so I could because you can write like a real long, lengthy tweet if you do. Ah. So I bought the blue check mark so I could give him a 15-point reason as to why it's a fuck up to do it. But at the end of the day, I don't know that I right back to your back to your original question. Um, I I kind of I fired off a couple kind of mocking tweets about oh whatever will I do my blue check mark's yeah. gone and then I was like oh, I guess I'll go take out the trash or you know <laughs> just keep living my life. Uh, and I think that's how a lot of people feel about it. I did hear a scenario yesterday or or Friday driving around doing some errands, listening to sports talk radio as I do. And one of the hosts, Bram Weinstein here locally, uh, brought up a good point, and he used the NFL draft as an example. Um, some of the uh, NFL reporters, even before they go live on air on ESPN or NFL Network, they'll tweet their scoops so they can get credit. Uh, but there are a lot of fake accounts for like Adrian Wojnarowski yeah. and, and those guys. And he said these fake accounts tweet that, for instance, the Carolina Panthers have traded the first pick to the Dallas Cowboys or something that it it could throw off coverage of stuff like that. And then I thinking about what we do here covering politics and, and big business and everything. What if a fake account for a very well-known journalist throws up, you know, a fake scoop or president, right. something awful has happened to the president or something like that. So I hadn't thought of it until I heard Bram say that on his show Friday. Um, so I'm, um, I'm still mulling whether this is a, a small deal, no deal, or a potentially big deal. I think it's potentially a big deal. I have a problem with it because, it, as I pointed out in this 15-point tweet, for that exact reason, is that that people can now pretend to be someone that they're not, and they can get a blue check yeah. mark by just paying for it in a phone yeah. number. So who is who and what is what? The I, I would love to see all transparency, just people just your name and that's it. And I understand there's privacy concerns and some people don't want to do that, but if you're going to be a public person, which we most definitely are, if we're reporters, we're not celebrities, but we are public people and we put our stuff out in the public. You want to know that the information being provided is vetted, is factual. And that blue check mark was one of the ways to do it in the past. And I know there are egalitarians out there who say, screw it. But the bottom line is it does make a difference. And again, assessing credibility. Michael. As one who very rarely uses Twitter or any other social media platform to engage in meaningful conversation, I'll post periodically one of my hits from CNN, or if I have something I want to say in a very short way, like the Dominion case was a good win from the standpoint of protecting New York Times versus Sullivan from a conservative Supreme Court. But beyond that, I don't use it. And so I never was given a or sought a blue check mark. And I think the number of followers I have is still hovering somewhere beneath the 2000 mark. And that and that and that's fine. You, 
Yeah, I know, I know. I know that's why that's why it's capitated my upward. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you and Bennett follow me, and people say, that's Well, it. if they're following him, there's no way I want to follow him. <laughs> hey, the company you keep, right? Exactly, right, exactly, right. So you know, I'm not a good one to ask uh about it because I don't I think it's a pernicious thing. I think people get followed when they engage in vitriolic conversation and back to our off-air conversation about Kirsten Powers and her move from intention to, to, to grace, I think we'd all be better off if we followed her lead. Um, but I understand the point that people use it as a communication vehicle. Uh, and it would be nice if we knew for sure that the person who was speaking was the speaker. And yeah. uh, and so it, it it is a it is a reality that this will be a communications vehicle that people of importance and even uh, less important uh, people like me will periodically use, and it's important that we know who who is who. Um, I agree. So I think getting rid of it and making it a, a pay to play. Um, thing is really unbelievable for the, the the who used to be the world's richest person and now I think is like number two or something on the list to, to be charging nine dollars a month or whatever it is uh for, for this is just seems ridiculous pretty, pretty sketchy pretty it is sketchy and with that we're gonna take a short break and then we'll be right Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and uh, I like the blue check mark because, you know, I could I, I trust the articles of those people under, the, you know, when they would post. And that's what I use my blue check mark for is to post articles. And so people don't pretend to be me who would want to. I don't. Uh, but anyway, moving forward. John, this next uh, uh, is just free. Uh, I, I, I know Mike's going to Michael's going to have to jump in on it, but, you know, I've been at the White House since the Reagan administration, and this particular president has the fewest interactions with the mainstream media than any president since Ronald Reagan. And as much grief as we gave Donald Trump, and look, I gave him a lot of grief, uh, deservedly so, mm -hmm. um, he, he did put himself out there. He, you know, he threatened my life on a couple of occasions indirectly, and his, his minions did, and he tried to yank my press pass, but you know, he would sit out there and do chopper talk. And in the last year of his administration, when he found out he could walk into the briefing room without having fire spewed on him, he <laughs> showed up every day for that uh, during the <clears throat> COVID crisis and uh, treated us to his bad breath. But um, but Joe Biden has had two press conferences in more than two years at the White House. Yeah. 
we used to have bilats when people would come to visit. There would be two and two questions for mm -hmm. each of the afterwards. Don't get it. Didn't get that this week. Rarely does he stop uh, and and take questions leaving or coming to the White House. You know, no chopper talk. And when he does, it's one or two questions with one or two word answers and right. one or two minutes. And he's boom. He's out of there. Now, that has given rise to a lot of people saying, well, it's dementia, Joe. It's sleepy, Joe. He's out of pocket and, and uh, you know, he's he's suffering and therefore he doesn't do it. But there is another idea. Look, he interacts with us exactly as much as he wants to. That's all there is to it. Don't make it out any other way. Mm -hmm. But do you think that it would behoove him to be in front of us a little bit more and not for our sakes, but for the sake of the country? Sure. For yeah, absolutely, I do. Uh, I think for 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 the sake of the country, it it would be good uh, to hear where the president is on uh, on more issues. Uh, you know, they they pick and choose. Uh, other than you know, like you said, the two or three questions uh, that he takes while the the helicopter is idling uh, behind him, uh, and you you know, and again, you get a five word answer, and sometimes. He'll just kind of shake one off and say, I don't have anything right now. So even when you get four, you just get three answers and they're really short. Uh, and in the press office, doesn't seem to, you know, flesh those out very much after. Uh, sometimes the Trump press office would do that. They would put a little yeah. meat on the bones. Um, but it, it, I think it's a, it's a problem. I think it would also help him politically if he interacted with with reporters more. He again, I've said this here and elsewhere. Uh, he was a senator for almost 40 years, and I was up there twice this week. And again, just walking and talking with senators for two days. This this is in at this point, he did it for so long. It's just second nature. Um, and he's good at it. Uh, and sometimes I the, the press office, I think, is reluctant uh, to put him out there because, you know, he'll be honest and sometimes maybe a little too honest uh, for his own good. But at the same time. He, you know, if, if he takes 10 questions and one of them is too honest, you know, he's he's showing you walk it back. They've done that. They've done that. Sure. But, you know, where Trump would go <laughs> off with the vitriol and the name calling and, and all of that, Biden does give you substance behind what he's thinking or where he wants to go or what he's proposing. And and that's all good. That's good for the public. Um, of course, it's good for us. It makes for better stories. And I think it would help him as he uh, reportedly gets ready to announce his re-election bid uh, maybe as soon as Tuesday. So I think it's a win-win-win. Um, I've been perplexed. You just made me dread my coming week, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, uh, and I've, uh, I've, I've been perplexed from the start on why they don't have him out there more and why he doesn't insist, because I, I, I quoted, uh, I cited our good friend Martha Kumar uh, last week. I'll do it again. She's the one who taught me, uh, to your point, um, you know, a president – a president is in front of reporters, in front of cameras as much as, as he wants to be, because ultimately it's his call. So you're right. Ultimately, this is Joe Biden's call uh, when he wants to stop, when he doesn't, when he wants to do a pool spray. And again, the two and two is not a difficult format, especially not for somebody like Joe Biden, again, who was a senator for 40 years. So the two and two format with another world leader, it should be a layup. And I think they're leaving points. Uh, they're leaving points off the board. Yeah, Michael. I guess I'll. I, you you see it from the outside. Do you think it would behoove him to step up to the plate and take questions more often, or do you think it benefits him not to do so? It's a very difficult question because 
when he steps up, he makes um, gaffes. That's what he does. And then they walk it back. And if he's worried about this narrative that he is in some way losing it cognitively and he's out there and they're constantly walking stuff back, that plays right into that narrative. And I think he's got to be worried about that, whether it's true or not, I have no idea, but um, it's, it's, a, it's an attack line that's going to be used against him for sure um, if he chooses to run, that he's just not with it. And so any ammunition you give to that narrative, I think, is dangerous for him. And so on the other hand, you want, you know, you want to be able to see and hear from your president, because if he stays hiding, it also feeds the narrative that what's he hiding from? He's hiding from, you know, our seeing his, you know, impaired uh, state of mind. And so he's, he could lose either way. And so I think they really have to figure out a way to manage both of those um, problems. And so I think the answer is he's got to be out there more um, than he is now, um, but probably not as much as you um, White House like to see him. types would like to see him there. Yeah. Well, and I'll close that short segment with saying this, Mr. President, as I said in the briefing room on Friday, we invite you to come down and visit us in the room anytime you'd like. We'll be happy to take your questions. I don't know if anybody would ever turn him down if he wanted to walk in there. Uh, I want to end this uh, week with a couple of letters to the editor. And uh, the first one is from a guy named Bob Arrow 44. And it's for you, Michael. Um, why, if Merrick Garland is serious about doing his job, why hasn't he indicted Donald Trump yet? Period. That should be a question mark. And then following is the other question. Is he on Donald Trump's side? Question mark. So first, let me take issue with the premise uh, about Merrick Garland not being serious about doing his job. I think Merrick Garland is all seriousness. He's always been and will always be serious. He was a serious Harvard College kid. So he, he is all about seriously doing his job. This job, the investigation of the January, the events of January 6th and all the things that spiral from it is about as complex a federal criminal investigation as exists. Now, Merrick was instrumental in overseeing the prosecution of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City Morrow building bombing, a very complicated case. He knows how to do complicated cases. This case makes the Mora building bomb case a simple, straightforward proposition. And I think what he's doing is exactly right, which is making sure that he has all the evidence he needs to make a decision about whether he can win a conviction and have that conviction be sustained on appeal. And that's taking time. And I understand the uh, questioner's frustration, but I can only say, and I could be proved wrong, but I can only say this is as complicated as it gets. And you've got a guy who's really trying to make sure that if they go forward, they're going to win and they're going to win on appeal. Because you don't want to be in a situation where you either lose a trial 
or you lose on, on appeal on a case of this sort. And so I would just ask your uh, uh, letter writers patience and we'll see who gets proved correct in the end. But my expectation is- How much is, more patience do you think we should have for it? As long as it is necessary to make the right decision in the case. There you go, there's your answer. I have one for you, uh, uh, John, and this comes from Don Patriot 76. I don't know if it's our Donnie or not, but it's- Oh man. <laughs> but the does question, that, the question- Does it, does it, like have, does it have a blue check mark? Yeah. <laughs> no, but once you listen to the question, you may wonder, why don't we in the press give Joe Biden more grief than we gave Donald Trump, who was good to the press? Okay. Um, number one. Um, <laughs> well, number one, uh, we probably would if the president interacted with us more. Um, he's gotten plenty of of tough questions over the years, but um, you know, Joe Biden is, um, you know, he's not calling Nancy Pelosi curse word names uh, in social media posts at seven forty in the morning, and then doing a pool spray an hour later where he gets asked about it and then argues with the reporter for for, for seven minutes. Uh, <laughs> it's a completely different tone from this president. It's a completely different approach. Uh, and again, we had more time to interact with President Trump, who was doing more incendiary things. I mean, he broke the mold of the presidency. So, of course, we we had a lot of questions for him. Uh, he threatened uh, nuclear war uh, with North Korea for sure and um, probably with Iran. So there you go. We have to ask him about it. Showboat. And, showboat. Right. And he never, right. And, and he never... Uh, he never appreciated being asked legitimate professional questions about a lot of times the ramifications of of his incendiary rhetoric. And that's just not Joe Biden. He doesn't do that. He now calls, for example, Kevin McCarthy, a guy who six months ago, he wouldn't say McCarthy's name. He wouldn't recognize him sometime at public events when McCarthy was in the front row. And now he calls him his friend and he's a great guy after one meeting and maybe I think another phone call. So it's just a different presidency, a different tone. And again, uh, you would see a little more of that natural tension between the press and the president uh, if Joe Biden did interact with us more. And, um, you know, maybe a day or two after announcing your reelection campaign would be a good day to uh, head out to the Rose Garden or head over to the East Room and take some questions. Yeah, I, I, I'll pass on the Rose Garden. That's a heat sink. It's always 150 degrees in the sun even at midnight the east room the east room is, is big it's better. spacious and it is air deliciously air-conditioned yeah right. so i take the east room but I'll, I'll also say that to this writer don patriot 76 you don't treat every president the same because every president doesn't treat you the same and it's not an equal you know uh equation it's not an either or it's not the same aboutism um and I, you know, Donald Trump never tr treated the press well. He came before us more often, but right. that that doesn't mean that he treated us well. It means that he took ample opportunity to treat us like crap whenever he had a chance to do it. I would like to see uh, Biden out in front of us more, taking some serious questions because there are serious questions that need to be asked. Uh, this week, we just saw today the uh, um, that we rescued our. Um, 
ambassadors and workers from Sudan. We've been pressing that issue in, uh, all week long in the White House, and I've gotten damn little information about it until today. Now, there needs to be more information from this administration, and it needs to be provided by the president. But we don't treat them the same because, as you pointed out, they don't treat us the same. There's a difference, and that's going to create a difference. So with that said, final question, Michael, Paul McCartney's favorite Beatles song? Come on, we all know what that's got to be. Well, I didn't even look at the answer, but I'm going to guess it's it's got to be yesterday. Well, so I don't know why this came up, but I got a, a note, uh, an alert about an interview with McCartney, and he was asked what were his what was his favorite Beatles song, and he answered yesterday, and as you just predicted, and I it got me thinking because we were talking about uh, John Lennon and what our favorite John Lennon songs uh, were, remember? And I said, I liked um, Help and I liked um, one other song, the name of which- uh, Beautiful Boy and Cold Turkey. No, no, to be a, to be a, to lead a better life you need. No, that that's the McCartney. You're there and everywhere, that's McCartney. That's McCartney. Um, anyway, doesn't make a difference. So anyway, I was thinking about, it, it, it'll come to me. I, I, I was thinking about, well, what is my, favorite um, Paul McCartney song because we were getting ready to do this show. We had just done um, Lennon a few weeks ago. And I was thinking that yesterday is absolutely not my um, not favorite close. song. I, I, and, and I was thinking that I like uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, but I love the song um, For No One. Oh, that's it, a good one. Uh, off of Revolver, which is about, I think, his... Um, Breaking up with Jane Asher, um, cry for no one. I, I, yeah, that should have lasted years. So I was thinking that 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 obs- more obscure song, perhaps, is my uh, along with here, there, and everywhere, is are my two um, McCartney songs that I like the best. McCartney and the Beatles songs. I'm gonna uh, the same one from the Jane Asher era would be I'm looking through you. That's on uh, Revolver. Uh, no, or is it Rubber Soul? Rubber Soul. And then um, my all-time favorite uh, McCartney song, I'm sorry, every time, John, you can probably relate to this, every time I walk in the White House during the Trump administration, this song popped into mind, Helter Skelter. <laughs> Indeed. That's about, a, that's, Helter Skelter is about a... Um, a slide. A yeah. Sliding board. <laughs> yeah, that's... Anyway... John, you, you got a favorite Paul McCartney Beatles song you want to add to the list? Oh, man, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I've always been a fan of, uh, I believe this was a Beatles song, uh, Let It Be and uh, uh, Blackbird. Oh, yeah. both. Uh, one is about the Black Panthers movement, Blackbird. No, no. Blackbird is about the integration. Of the, right. The, the, yeah, well, it started out, it's about, yeah. It was written the, the young the young woman who integrated um Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Yeah, yeah great song. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. And then what was the other one? Um Let It Be. Yeah. About his mother and a bunch of other stuff and the Beatles themselves. All right. So with that said, we've wasted our hour, but we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh listen, guys, thanks for joining us. Uh Michael, when we want to catch you, your podcast is That Said with Michael Zeldin on all podcast apps in your neighborhood spotify and wherever fine podcasts are sold and john you 
CQ afternoon briefing, uh, CQ.com, Tuesday through Thursday, and every Friday morning, uh, weekly column on rollcall.com. And this is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. You can catch my uh, columns at uh, Salon, and the name of the book is Free the Press, wherever fine books are sold. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us. See you later. Yeah.